This morning on the Marshall Pro Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. We have part two of your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A. I think this is a first, y'all. I do not believe I've ever recorded an episode of the Week in IndyCar. Definitely at 7.35 in the morning on a Thursday. Wow. Tried to get this going last night. Had a lot of things in life that took precedence. So want to knock this out because, boy, not only do we still have your questions sent in from earlier in the week for this part two, thankfully put together by our pal Tim Falkowitz, but we also have what went down with our man Felix Rosenquist. He's going to Aero McLaren SP, y'all. That's not a question. Formal confirmation. You can look for that to follow after the St. Petersburg season finale is done. But uh, seats open, seats closed, another one opens. I told y'all the silly season was not only going to be extremely silly, there's going to be a lot of stuff happening that, yeah, might not have been expected. And this is just one of them. There's more to come, I promise you. So in the spirit of trying to stay on top of the things you are asking about, even though I haven't put out a new call for questions in relation to the Felix Chip Ganassi Racing, Aaron McLaren SP stuff, going to get to the questions you did send in in just a moment, but we're actually going to do a little bit of a, a freewheeling thing here with some of the immediate questions that came in following, what, Tuesday night's news? Tuesday afternoon's news about Felix and all that. Then we're going to jump into the formal questions. So where do we go first? You know, Lynn, uh, you, you sent a number of things through, I believe, Tuesday and Wednesday. And I also mentioned to hold that for next week. Please disregard. I am an idiot. But we do have a couple of folks who wanted to know right away. Lynn, the IndyCar fan, mentioning, hey, Thought that Felix was the future of Chip Ganassi Racing. Who do you think will take that role right now? Rafael Placha, you ask, or you mentioned Ganassi are always putting Felix as a tool uh, to help serve Scott Dixon's race strategies. Some other folks asking, what about Elio? Is he still in the frame here? Uh, Other folks, a lot of folks, frankly, saying, whoa, was not expecting this one with Felix filling in the seat that will be vacated by Oliver Askew here in just a matter of days. Let me see, is there another one as well that we might get into? Uh, Vincent, our pal Vincent1701, mentions, I remember Mike Hull from Chip Ganassi being a big fan of Oliver, Oliver Askew. Could there be something there? So why don't we work in this general frame of Oliver, Aero McLaren SP, Chip Ganassi Racing, Felix Rosenquist, then we're going to get to your submitted questions in rock and roll. Need to mention up front that is part of what I do and part of what reporters do. We talk to a lot of people and we ask a lot of questions. Many of those conversations end up being off the record. I'll tell you, I'll share some insights, I'll give you the deal, you know, I'll give you what went on, but. If you mention any of it, boy, we're going to send missiles your way. By no means can I mention everything. Uh, I wish I could, but it's kind of stock and trade that, you know, when you're told something in confidence, that's where it remains. 
Let's start with the, whoa, where did this come from thing? Uh, I'd been hearing about Felix and a possible move. Don't want to say that I had a, a specific destination, but had been hearing rumblings about this for weeks. And I know others had as well. So this was by no means a secret, just heavily undefined. Within the last week, week and a half, started hearing that there might be something a little more firm where he might be heading. And there was only one team mentioned in all the things that I was hearing, and that was Errol McLaren SP. Just give you a little bit of background, maybe helping the timeline of chasing it. We'll, we'll fill out a little bit of uh, the, the questions in some areas. So last Wednesday... So that would have been, let me open up the calendar here because my brain doesn't remember numbers good. So last Wednesday, the 7th, sent an email in, as I often do. Uh, Robin Miller does the same thing, and our editor does the same thing, where we'll just keep each other abreast of things that we're not just hearing, but moving to the front of the, I'm going to chase it, uh, and, and really see what we can develop here into a story-type plate. And that's where the Felix to Aaron McLaren SP thing moved middle of last week. Calls and calls and calls as you normally do. Well, what's the easiest way to try and get the straight answer? Well, you call the person in question. And young Felix, love the guy. If you've listened to the show for any period of time, you know, been rooting for him to come to IndyCar long before he got here. Love the kid. I call or text him. And he usually responds immediately or calls back as soon as he is free, which would make calling him once and getting no response and then calling him a second time and getting no response and calling a third time and getting no response would suggest that for that to happen over a span of however many days, uh, hmm, that's curious. Why, why would someone who's always good, to uh to talk to whatever hmm curiously not available all right well fair enough let's call his manager our good show pal someone who's done many many podcasts with us someone i've known for a long time stefan johansson who doesn't love steph let's call his manager we're on the same time zone he usually picks up when i call first ring or two and if not again get back right away let's call steph Okay, no luck there. All right, we'll call back, maybe try again the following day. Okay, nothing there as well. And I think there was a third call, too. So just, huh, all right, two folks who are never short for time or words, both of them. Can't get them on the phone, can't get a response. Oddly enough, funnily enough, the thing where you go, well, huh, uh, I'm hoping you know, got the calls and those to call back. And then you see like Stefan likes a photo that I posted on Instagram. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, again, kind of clear that if I called you at whatever 10 AM and you're liking something that I posted at 10 30 AM. Okay. Got it. Just one of those things where you go. If you really wanted to disguise what's going on, you'd answer play dumb uh, feed me a line of BS and hang up. And then all of a sudden, 
potentially the person on the other end of the phone whose job it is to report wouldn't go, huh, all right, well, um, I now know that folks are willing to talk, so maybe they aren't trying to hide something. Anyways, wasn't a great job there of trying to hide that, yes, indeed, there's something, there is smoke. Can't say there's fire yet, but it sure seems like there's smoke. When the driver in question and the manager in question, I think between the two of them, six calls in three or four or five days, weren't picking up. So rang yet another person who might have some insight, that being Mr. Chip Ganassi. So rang him on Thursday, had two questions for him. First one was for a story that I was trying to get finished and posted by the end of the last week. That being the Indy Lights story you might have just read on Racer, bit of a deep dive, mentioned that I had two questions, asked him the one about Indy Lights first, because genuinely, that's the one I was trying to push out the door first. The second question about Felix wasn't necessarily a time-critical, oh my goodness, this is a breaking exclusive scoop type deal. Nonetheless, Chip had other feelings answered the Indy Lights question quickly and then said, all right, well, what was, what was the other question? What was the real reason for the phone call? Kind of hard-edged response. And I said, well, there is a real reason to call. The Indy Lights one is a real question, which we've now seen is used in that story. The other one is just a follow-up to our call from before Mid-Ohio, where I asked about, line up for next year, how things are coming along. And you mentioned, to my surprise, things were not buttoned up on the 10 car with Felix. So, and in that call, I didn't necessarily get the warm and fuzzies. So just checking in because I have heard he's poking around elsewhere and hearing that it might be Aero McLaren SP, to which he said, Working on the budget, continuing to work on getting that car just all sorted out. Key point, though, working and interested and want to have him back. And so that was a very straight and declarative thing from Chip that I was, A, happy to hear, and it did not come across as BS. Would also say that with the doubt kind of expressed in our first silly season call, somewhere around early-ish September, it did come across. Not so much on the Felix side, but just in a general sense, there was a bigger question mark hanging over the 10 car than I really expected. In the conversation we had on Thursday, far more positive. Wasn't saying that it was all going to be super easy and wrapped up ASAP, but finishing the call said, okay, how would I paraphrase this? Your guys are continuing to work on it, getting close, but all working towards something positive or not. And he said, yes, working towards something positive. I said, great. Just looking for how to write this in the most intelligent way when I get to that silly season piece. End of phone call. More calls to of those couple that I mentioned to Steph and Felix. Still no responses still kind of left the door a bit open. So we get to early this week, and I probably should have pressed the throttle a bit harder to chase, continue chasing the Felix piece, but nonetheless, 
we come to find out that whatever it was afternoon on Tuesday, that news of his signing had leaked. So we'll just share these two quick things and then probably going to move on a little bit. I know there's some other questions around uh, who replaces Felix, thought he was a guy of the future, uh, so on and so forth. Although this has been building behind the scenes for three weeks, a month, however long ago with Felix and possibly moving somewhere else, heard from a couple of, of directions that this may not have been actually signed and become formal until the beginning of this week. So one of the other suggestions that I've heard, can't say it's accurate, sharing, overstating that folks often tell lies in these kinds of situations, but I have heard at least one suggestion that there might have been a feeling that Felix was snatched out from under Chip Ganassi Racing, meaning not that there might have been a question as to whether he was sniffing around, but more of the, ah, maybe were the folks at Ganassi pretty confident that they're going to get all their business sorted out, get everything handled on the, the car and budget side, and then put a contract in front of Felix, and there was no real question as to whether that was all just going to go forward, as Chip suggested in our phone call. Maybe being there and being available to sign. Um, maybe the timing of his availability and lack of that contract extension was something where Aero McLaren SP was able to step in and say, well, why wait? We got something for you here. Was there a bit of a surprise that he was signed away? I can't tell you because I don't have those answers yet, but I'm just telling you that was offered as a suggestion like, ooh, might have been a little bit of a uh, a run made on someone who the one side that had him thought, well, he's not going anywhere and or we're not going to lose him. Maybe that didn't exactly pan out the way they expected. So I don't want to say there's any acrimony between the teams, but uh, this maybe didn't go down totally peacefully. The part about when is this going to be confirmed, um, ask me about that <clears throat> later in the year. <laughs> Maybe with a few beers in me, I'll, I'll try and share some of what I've heard there, and hopefully with some time and distance, uh, that story won't be as sensitive as it is right now. So, yeah, uh, interesting stuff. I'm going to drink some coffee, by the way, because my voice is kind of trash already. As for who's going to fill Felix's spot, uh, I do know that the team is interested. We've got a crow outside saying good morning as well. Do you know that there is an interest to fill the 10 car compared to just move Jimmy Johnson into it and stay at three cars? I do know that there is a desire to expand the team, which has been part of the plan uh, here this year. But who? That's a great question, Lynn. So without belaboring the point, I would say that Felix, I don't know if the move to Air McLaren SP is going to be a giant opportunity that vastly changes his fortunes. 
What does that mean? Well, if we look at his rookie year in 2019, he had an amazing season. Finished sixth overall in the championship. Scott Dixon finished fourth. I know that led a lot of us to say, whoa, holy cow. This really strong one-two punch Ganassi's been wanting hasn't had since Dario retired in 2013. This is why they're going after Felix. They believe this kid can run right there with Dixon. And on a day where Dixon is having problems or is unable to get the job done, Felix can be right there on the podium, getting the win, whatever it is. But there's that component while Dixon continues his full-time career. And with 40 and 40 plus coming Dixon's way, if he's not already there, this kid could potentially be the heir, right? In a couple of years, Felix going to take over, carry the baton, continue Chip Ganassi Racing's front-running success. So that's what it looked like last year. We also know during the offseason, Dixon was orchestrating some changes within his number nine car program, didn't feel like they were where they needed to be last year, despite winning some races, but also finishing fourth. Uh, And then, yeah. So what happened last year? Scott was fourth. Felix was sixth. The takeaway was, wow, this kid's right there. Imagine what happens in year two. Well, we've seen the structural changes made at Dixon's uh, number nine program, and we've seen him lead the championship from day one. The highest that I recall seeing Felix rise, and this was right after winning his first race, is eighth in the standings, and I believe he is currently 10th. We could easily say that, and frankly, you could say this about a lot of drivers in the field, whether it was a ill-timed yellow where Felix was on strategy for a podium or maybe another win or a bad pit stop, which plagued a lot of people to open the season, or name some of the things where you go, there's some stuff that has happened that everyone has witnessed or even behind the scenes, maybe it's a mechanical thing, who knows, but there are some things that have slowed Felix's march throughout the entire season. And if you remove some of those things, one of them being wiped off of the front row uh, at Mid-Ohio round two, crashed out uh, on the first lap, therefore obviously a terrible finishing position. There's a reason he's 10th in the standings. If you take away some of these bad things, could he be 6th, 7th? Say that's a really good argument you could make would just say that of the other rumblings that I've heard for more than a month, it's, huh, we know that Felix is super fast. We just aren't exactly sure where the consistency is gone because what we have now and have had all season, Dixon in a happier place, restructured team, call it a truer representation of what he expected from the team, Felix in his second year, so returning to tracks, a lot of tracks he'd never been to last year, had to learn, all that learning curve is over, but we all expected to be a massive, massive piece of momentum moving into 2020. We've seen that Dixon has been first all season, and Felix has been no higher than eighth when everything was going well. 
And again, we could probably remove some things and bump them up to sixth or seventh. But it does recast things a little bit to say, hey, no question the kid can win. No question the kid can take polls. And he is, there's nothing he is lacking in terms of talent to be a front running guy. But the fourth and sixth last year, with only two spots separating Dixie and Felix, turning into nine, ten spots, or if we do a little bit of correction, maybe five, six spots, that has been noticeable. And so one of the questions is, was last year a bit of an outlier? Did Felix do amazing in sixth, or were things off enough with Dixon's program to where maybe we got a false read. Maybe things were closer than they actually were in terms of potential. And now this year with what we've seen, the gap has widened, doubled, tripled, you name it. And is he still that successor? I definitely believe that if Felix were to return with Ganassi next year, there'd be some off-season tweaks bigger push towards what things in your game, Felix, can we work on to bring the consistency that has been fleeting this year? What can we do car-wise, team-wise, like Dixon did during the 2019 offseason? What can we do with your number 10 program in similar ways? My definite belief is if he were to come back with Ganassi next year, we that 2019 level of performance would not only be there, but be better and higher. But at least for where he's at this year, even with that correction and moving him up a few spots, I think it's still standing out as we know where Dixon's going to be almost every weekend. We just can't really say where his teammate's going to be. Is that part of the why the Ganassi team didn't immediately put his name on a contract or try to at least can't tell you whether Felix would have signed it earlier and made sure he was unavailable to everyone else. I don't know, but I know that there's some questions that weren't necessarily there at this time last year about, is he the guy I think he is and could be if he were to stay there, but that's not happening as for how will he fit? At Aaron McLaren SP, will he do better? Will he be running second or third in the championship next year, or if not vying for the championship alongside Pato Award? I know he has the talent and potential to do so. That isn't a question mark for me. Will the team be capable of offering that? If we use Pato as an example, who's run between third and fifth in the championship for the last good while the potential is there as well so maybe it's just a case of although it's still very early in his career maybe a fresh start is indeed the thing that he's going to need last quick thing or two of the questions uh, coming in via twitter informally uh, him being subject to reacting to dixon's strategy and that not always playing to his favor I hear you all that have said that. I can't argue against that. Just say that 
that's not vastly uncommon when you have a multi-car team, one driver that is in the championship hunt and one or more that aren't. And if there are things that can be done from a team standpoint to benefit the one that is capable of going for a championship, that's nothing new. It's certainly not unique to IndyCar. If we get to middle to latter stage of the 2021 season, by chance, Pato is second in the championship, first, whatever it might be. Felix is two, three, four plus positions back. Would we expect Aaron McLaren SP at whatever race to come across the radio and say, hey, Felix, please let so-and-so buy. Let your teammate buy. Or we're going to try a different pit strategy that is probably going to erase any chance of you winning, but it's going to be the thing that will help us in some way to get our championship contender closer, getting more points, whatever it might be. It absolutely will, and vice versa. If Felix is vying for a title next year and Pato is not, I would expect the same thing. So that's not making excuses for Ganassi. It's just if we look at other forms of racing outside of IndyCar, it's kind of the norm. Uh, Good Lord. (laughs) Seems like almost an entire decade uh, of Ferrari and Formula One with Michael Schumacher had his teammates pulling over, leading races (laughs) on the way to victory. Pulling over, letting Michael win, uh, since he was the one who was in closest contention for the title. So the one way to make sure a team doesn't do that is to be in title contention. So do you blame the team, whatever team it might be, for doing such things? Or do you say, well, the one cure for that can be controlled from the cockpit in many situations. So there you go. Finally, Who is going to be the successor for Felix at Chip Ganassi Racing? Who's going to be that new future replacement stand-in baton taker, you name it? Who is that future next-generation title winner for Chip to take over Felix's ride? I have no idea. I, I couldn't pretend to have the foggiest idea of who that might be. I would say... If we go back to what I opened with talking about silly season, and there's a lot of silliness still to come, I am aware of one or more, not a lot, but one or more drivers, currently high-profile, very successful drivers, who are driving in the paddock, driving for other teams, who could have an interest in changing teams whether that is something that they are able to do contractually with ease, meaning they're out of contract and makes it super smooth transition, or maybe able to get out of their contract um, that has them in place for the next year, however many. I think we still have some pretty interesting moves that could happen. If we're talking about a young driver ready to go, this is the one we believe is going to win a championship. Vincent, you mentioned Oliver Askew. I haven't heard anything about him being considered for Felix's seat. I don't know if there could be any changes there. I know that I've heard uh, one rumor that since there should be a couple of oval races available with Jimmy Johnson's program, we've obviously heard that Tony Kanaan's in the frame for that. I expect that to go Tony's way. 
We know Oliver's run pretty well on ovals. Could that be a, a taste test, a way to work with the kid and get a feel uh, for something farther down the road while someone else is a bit of a stopgap solution in the number 10 Honda? I don't know. Genuinely don't. But I know that where Felix looked and felt like the perfect complement to Dixie, which then led to his signing, I'm struggling to see which driver, either young road to indie level, uh, we really don't see Chip Ganassi Racing taking kids right out of indie lights, uh, so that's not really a trend. Uh, but somebody of Felix's caliber, keeping in mind he was signed, I think, I think he was 27 when he was signed, you know, and he'd had a lifetime of experience all over the world, really, truly battle-hardened, not some 19-year-old kid who, you know, doesn't even live on his own type routine. I just don't know of any names of that kind of young driver profile that would fit right away for 2021. But hey, that's why this season is silly, and I love it. And, oh, man. So, yeah. Thanks for those questions. And I'm sure there's going to be more. And uh, send them in when I make the call for questions next week. Let's see how many of the formal items you sent in I can get through and knock out before I got to call Renus VK in a little over an hour to do our guest week in IndyCar episode. We tried to do it yesterday while he was in Mexico before he flew to Charlotte. And whether it was his mobile, whether it was WhatsApp, whether it was FaceTime audio, it either sounded like he was many, many leagues under the sea, or we would get five to ten second breaks in connectivity. And so it was kind of funny. It sounded more like Morse code than any consistent strings of conversation. So um, he's in the simulator today, but he's going to call me once he is free. So... All right, uh, Lord, we're going to start start off. Sorry for the malapropisms and mispronunciations. I leave them in, as some of you know. Uh, this is my unpolished turd of a show, and it's just filled with all the many human errors and mental errors that I make. Uh, we're going to go with our pal Sasha Khan, 24. Sasha, have not had, a, I think, a question from you for a while, so really do appreciate you sending this in. And our pal Tim Falkowitz put this at the top of the Q&A. So let me drink another sip of coffee. Uh, she says, couple of leader circle questions here. Since the leader circle standings is attached with the entry, not the driver, is there anything in the rule book from, say, Alexander Rossi returning to his Indy 500 winning number 98 for St. Pete uh, in an AutoNation entry? Or it could be Napa. Uh, who knows? Not sure. Sponsored Andretti, heard of Autosport with Marco Andretti and Kerbag and Janian. Entry. Marco would return to his old number 27 entry. Rossi would previously, would obviously give the team the best potential to finish ahead of the number 14 Foyt car and the number 28 Carpenter car. Not that it would happen, but could it given the potential million dollar miss? Question mark. Yes, indeed, Sasha. They could, if he was free, they could throw Lewis Hamilton into Marco's car or anybody that IndyCar would sanction to drive, including an Alexander Rossi or whomever else, all in the interest of getting that forward and into the top 22 
to be safe to earn that $1 million leader circle contract, knowing that there are 22 available, 23 full-time entries, and this is a program for full-time entries that commit for the full season. So yes, and repeating something many of you know, while there was a big goal to get started with Sebastian, our dear French fry, in the number 14 Foyt entry as soon as they could, the plan to actually start that out and get rolling at the Harvest Grand Prix and move into the upcoming Firestone Grand Prix season finale at St. Pete, 100% motivation to get the 14 car into a safe, uh, if not much safer place in the leader circle to make sure that it does have that million dollars attached to it. That's the... It is such an important piece of business. That is why these efforts are being made. With the average IndyCar budget being five to six million, pretty much every team will tell you six is the number that they need. You know, this, although that number can fluctuate a little bit, could be a little lower, could be a little higher. On average, that guaranteed million dollar payout from the series, that's a 15, 20% stake in the budget right away. So it does mean that if you're a $6 million per season team, well, get that leader circle locked in. Now all of a sudden you're chasing five. I know five to six is not a huge jump by any means, but it's still a million bucks. And for those who don't know, uh, the leader circle program, it's prize money is what it is. It's a socialized, democratized, I don't know, mate, no, it's more socialized, I think the best way to frame it prize money payout so it's not just a case of like hey you finished in the top 22 and we love you so we're going to give you a million bucks it's 15 plus 15 ish years ago uh, there were enough complaints from the smaller team saying hey y'all pay out this prize money at every race and it's pretty good serious prize money too but the big three win it all they always win they take it all and the rest of us are left with table scraps. How do you expect us to get any better? How do you expect us to stay afloat when, really, you could just hand it out at the beginning of the season and say, well, top big three teams, here's the lion's share of prize money, and the rest of you, here are your peanuts. Uh, Why even bother? In IndyCar, IRL, maybe, I forget exactly what name it was under when the leader circle came in, agreed said, all right, well, what we're going to do is take the vast majority of prize money, excluding the Indy 500, uh, but we're going to take the vast majority of what we would normally pay out uh, with that money coming to you based on where you finish at each race. We're just going to lump that into a big pool and slice it up evenly. So for all of you that commit to the full season and indeed show up for the full season, sometimes there's an exception, a driver gets hurt, car car gets destroyed and there's no time to find another one or put another one in the field again uh, there's been a couple of exceptions but by and large if you commit to us we'll commit to you and here's this million dollars you don't have to worry about whether you would get a slice of it under genuine payout through finishing position you're all going to get this if you commit so that's where this million dollars really become a annual expectation for all but one or two teams. Another thing too, which is just interesting, when you hear drivers or even team owners complain about the prize money being a joke, there's no real prize money, and so on and so forth, 
it's because you know winning an average race um it's like 30 grand i think something like that uh it's just not much so that's where you get folks who complain but again we're also coming back to the the key point that well yeah true the uh the payout to win the firestone grand prix it's going to be pennies compared to what it was back in the day um we do need to acknowledge though that this leader circle program has really become something that yeah the money gets paid out just in this it's not a lump sum by the way uh it is done in payments so that's how that has come together and that's why folks are working really darn hard to uh, make sure that they get into the top 22. Sasha closes with some keen observations asking whether the leader circle program should be adjusted in an attempt to maintain the same number of teams competing or entries competing full-time mentioning uh, she'd worry more about either Ford or Carpenter being able to field a second car in 2021 if they miss out on that million dollar leader circle contract than they would about say Andretta Andretta sure (laughs) Andretti fielding a fifth car or something along those lines I hear you I can't disagree with the general sentiment of, hey, if we know coming into the season there's going to be X amount of full-time cars, well, that's the amount of leader circle contracts that should be made available. would mention that two things jump out. There is, I mentioned the socialist socialist side a moment ago, there is a bit of a democratic side to this too of, hey, we love y'all that want to show up and we truly value you but this is sport and competition and maybe not everybody gets a trophy maybe there is a cutoff that says you know uh we want you to do your best we want you to be here but uh if you are a season-long equivalent of a starting park and i'm not saying that applies to any of the teams you've mentioned just throwing out a hypothetical if you have a bad team with a bad driver and they're trying to do this on the cheap and they know that they can get IndyCar to help them budget-wise with a million bucks and who knows, maybe make a profit on this somehow, I don't think that's the spirit of what the modern owners of IndyCar want. I also know that with some of the numbers that I've heard in terms of the financial losses that uh, have been suffered this year as a result of COVID and no fans and so on. Uh, I would just say that provided we have 22 leader circles for next year, which we expect, but just having 22 next year, I think that's going to be a blessing. Uh, The fact that that's not being cut down to one or two or three, I think is going to be pretty amazing. So, I hear you, but at the same time, I would say adding another million or two million or three or four, however many with additional contracts, money's got to come from somewhere. And in a normal year, we believe that a pretty good profit's made with IMS in particular that would go into the kitty to help cover all this stuff off. Right now, oh, I I think we're talking IndyCar silly season, mostly teams and drivers. Will we see some moves, uh, exits, and otherwise 
outside of teams and drivers, mostly coming as a result of the heavy financial blows that have been taken. Buckle up for some news there too, friends. Uh, thanks for that, Sasha. Chris Wright got another one here about Leader Circle. Do you think that the number 20 Ed Carpenter racing car will need to finish in the Leader Circle money for Connor to have a shot at a full-time ride in a seat next year? Hashtag me personally. I'd like to see him be teammates with Rossi and Herta, but a season with either team would be great. Also mentions kindly continued prayers for your wife, Shabrell, and yourself. Well, it coming back to the 10, 15, 20% of a team's budget, I would say it could only help for sure if he were to return to Ed Carpenter Racing. Speaking with Ed, there's a desire to hold on to Connor. There's a desire to hopefully convert Connor from part-time that he shares with Ed in the 20 car to full-time. In that scenario, um, I'm not sure how that happens. So Ed being in the 20 car, that's his, that's his number, that's his entry that he shares with, has shared with a number of drivers in recent years. If by chance uh, they believe that they can put the budget together for Connor to be in his own car, we would in theory be looking for a driver to do road and street courses for Ed. Could that be an Oliver Askew type? Again, who knows? Uh, don't believe Oliver has money really to bring for that, but regardless, that million dollars would be attached to Ed's entry not to Connors, unless Ed wants to vacate the 20, yada, 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 and use that money in the 20 uh, along with Connors' sponsorship to make that feasible. So, yeah, still a lot of questions here as to how that might pan out. And on the Andretti side, yeah, it's the same thing. Um, the 26 car, for example formerly driven by Zach Veach, now driven by Hinch, not knowing Andretti's plans on how they're going to fill what and who and where. It's a 28 car driven by Hunter Ray. Is that a foregone conclusion that he won't be back? Uh, is that going to be open? Well, that car, that entry does have a leader circle coming to it because uh, Ryan is well-placed in uh, the championship. So, yeah, we don't know. Uh, I can just tell you that I haven't heard anything related to Connor and his program and it being overflowing with sponsorship, meaning we can go anywhere. I've got enough budget behind me with great people that, boy, I can just pick and choose. Uh, I definitely think if Connor is going to be a full-time guy, to your greater point here, Chris, whether it's with Carpenter and Dreddy or who knows, that entry having a leader circle attached to it to bring down the overall budget number needed to be achieved, I think that would actually be pretty darn important. Um, Cody Oakwood, do you think think IndyCar should be doing more to promote the battle at the bottom of the point standings for the leader circle money that you've mentioned several times on the podcast and so on? It says, without the money amount of money at stake, would it be compelling to the viewing audience? Uh, normally, nobody would care about who is finishing last, but the financial implications of where cars finish at St. Pete seems pretty dramatic to me in light of COVID and its impact on funding for next season. That's a great question, Cody. Uh, do I think they should do more? Of course. Any, any interesting theme, getting folks fired up to follow something new or different? I'm probably going to always say yes to that. This is a little bit weird, though, in that capacity. 
Is this something that you ever see IndyCar talking about? No, <laughs> they really don't. Uh, I'm not saying they've never mentioned leader circle, of course, but I'm just saying in terms of a theme and where people are at, like it's one of those business ish things that we all know about in the sport, in the paddock have for many years. It's just not often a big deal. Um, this year it's become a big deal. As you mentioned, COVID budgets being tight questions of sponsors leaving or cutting back wanting refunds. So it's not in their personality to do so, especially now that they're owned by Roger, who is very tight-lipped when it comes to anything business and finance. So admittedly, Cody, I think it'd be great for them to do it because maybe you'd get some more folks really tuning in to watch uh, the battle at the back of the field. You know, it's not too dissimilar maybe from when we get down to the end of some stick and ball seasons. And usually there's questions of tanking, right? Which football team, basketball team, and whatnot, which teams are, are admittedly intending to suck or not making a huge effort to win in the hope of getting the highest draft pick. Um, this is a little bit like that. No one's trying to finish last, though, here for the leader circle. But it is that who's going to really get that golden ticket uh, by not finishing at the bottom? So, again, maybe a little parallels maybe not i don't know but there is a little feel of like oh let's see how this pans out the final game of the year or final couple of games and see who indeed uh gets the greatest odds to have something really positive happen in the next draft so i'll just tell you that we're going to write about it and we're going to keep doing it because it interests me so i also appreciate the fact that it interests some of you uh, Daniel Summersgill, how you doing, buddy? Says, would what would be considered a good result for Team Penske's so- Scott McLaughlin? What is wrong with me? I can't talk. Good mouth, face, today. What would be considered a good result for Scott McLaughlin in his IndyCar race to be you at St. Pete? Hashtag me personally, I would expect he would want to be more than, say, just finish with the top 15, being considered exceptional. If Scotty is anything other than last, next to last, or third to last in the opening practice session at St. Pete, I will be greatly surprised, Daniel. St. Pete isn't the hardest street course in the world, but it certainly has the attributes of a street course that nobody really likes, which is you can make up considerable amounts of speed in select areas and those select areas are the ones with the highest risk reward factor uh yeah so for scotty to get the final couple of tents out of the car he's going to have to wander into some very uncomfortable performance zones and if he gets them wrong the walls are waiting because they have certainly claimed many others before him. So I would expect his opening session to be him towards the bottom, if not all the way at the bottom, just because everyone else is warmed up and ready to go. And if not, the majority have been here for the full season. But I would say come qualifying, would I expect him to be close to the fast 12? Yes. 
potentially in the fast 12, if there are no problems experienced leading up to qualifying, I'd say him being 12th-ish should be possible. He will be driving on Firestone's alternate tires, the red stripe tires for the first time, the faster tires, how those activate, how those become good and then deliver one or two laps of peak performance and fall off. He's going to have to learn that uh, with no real serious running time. Will they throw on a bolt or will they bolt on a set of reds at the end of the first practice session? Just to give him a glimpse? Probably. I'd do that. Uh, so this all leads to what should we expect? <clears throat> so live pit stops, uh, a start, and we can expect a couple of restarts as well. Having to mind the fact that his teammate Joseph Newgarden is vying for a championship. Having to keep in mind that while he's not a teammate, he looks to... Scott Dixon as a home country hero, and I, I know he would not want to impede upon the Chip Ganassi racing driver and trying to show the team that he is good and fast and certainly is, is deserving of that fourth seat, full-time seat next year. I'd say there's a lot of stuff that makes it really hard to say, Daniel, what would qualify as a good result of course, if he finishes in the top 10, that would be amazing. Does he have the talent to do that? Without question. Uh, this guy has demonstrated he could be deep into the top 10, uh, given time and opportunity. So I just don't know how much of that I place on him in his debut on a track that can and will bite with the slightest misstep. So knowing the bigger things in mind, learning, being a good teammate, staying off the walls, uh, trying not to impede on the bigger picture championship that is going on. Also showing that he's not, uh, he's not a long-term project meaning, okay, yeah, well, probably going to need to do another year or two of tests and sporadic races maybe in we hope by then we'll see if he's figured it out. He needs to be able to show that even if it's a 10th place finish, which for whatever reason that feels like that, something that uh, we might see him be able to do, he just needs to have the team walking away saying, oh, man, not only did we tick all the boxes, this went smoothly. He fit right in. Things went well. Not a lot else to report. That's the thing he needs to do. Another quick thing to mention here, probably should have mentioned it in the opening bit. Um, so interviewed Scotty earlier this week. I'm forgetting whether it was Monday or Tuesday, but talking about St. Pete and the challenges and so on. And so I believe that story went up this morning on Racer in that conversation, and there wasn't really a, a place that it fit. Uh, it was pretty clear he'd read read or listened or whatever it was. Hi, Scotty, if you're listening. Uh, about what I'd heard from, you know, uh, let's just say it, there wasn't a question as to its accuracy. Uh, there was no doubt about it that he was planning to stay after St. Pete, he and his wife, and start house hunting. At least in the conversation that we had, he mentioned kind of not pertaining to any of the questions, but just 
wanted to insert on his own that he will indeed be returning home after St. Pete. Now, what does that mean? We are back to silly season. We can't get away from it. Does it mean plans for next year have changed and he won't be their fourth driver? Does it just mean that timing-wise, instead of doing this right after St. Pete, going to go home and come back at some point in the future and they'll start that process then and everything's still on course as we've expected it to be for him to become that fourth full-time driver? Just, again, going to go home for a while and come back and search later? Can't tell you. That really wasn't the premise of the call. It's not the reason that I asked for the call. So you try and, you know, that's a little bit of the way you conduct yourself. If you asked for an interview with someone on a specific topic, um, you try and stay in that general vein. So getting into next year and what are you doing and all of that stuff, that wasn't part of the conversation. But anyways, interesting, right? So I'm sure that question will be asked of him many times, though uh once he gets to st petersburg so interesting i sure hope everything is going forward and we will have him full-time next year but if he can just show that roger and tim Sindrick were correct in their belief that yeah it's worth going through this effort to insert him at the final race i uh i think that's a win man and whatever finishing position is attached to that provided it's not him qualifying 23rd and running 23rd all day um provided there's nothing really negative attached to the effort there daniel uh, i think we leave in a pretty good place with scotty's future in indycar ryan terpstra says cars were presumably in the garages and ready to roll out at st pete when everything got shut down in march how much will setups have changed when they go back teams have presumably learned a lot about the aero screen but this is still the first street race of the season. Great question, Ryan. I don't expect setups to change drastically, but keep in mind, beyond the aero screen, there will have been a season of damper development, suspension, tuning, adjustments. Definitely more learned from an aerodynamic standpoint that would lead to some changes there. I would say that there's probably going to be a lot of things changed uh, changed for sure with the setups just because of the natural season-long arc of learning more about the car with the differences that it has coming in to the year and a lot of the driver preference things. <clears throat> you know, there are drivers who at the beginning of the year or whatever duration to open the year might not have been super happy and felt like they were just missing something in the setup, and they found it halfway through the year or just recently, those kinds of things are going to be applied. And that's the fun part. So that's why we need to look back at Texas, Indy Road Course and such, and realize that those are the places where teams really got their first hint as to whether they nailed their off-season development or not. Normally that's St. Pete. You get a good feel for, all right, who did the best homework during the offseason? That gets told once we get into the St. Pete weekend. Also, we learn between engine manufacturers uh, who came up with the most, who's holding back, et cetera, et cetera. All those normal things we attach to St. Pete, not going to be there. So 
I would not expect things that we have seen of late to change drastically. So where teams have fared, I would say don't look to St. Pete as a place where there's going to be a, a gigantic alteration in their form. Uh, let's see, Daniel Summerskill again. Daniel, we love you. Uh, ideally, in future years, which track should host a season finale? Uh, recently, it's been WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca, but crowd numbers seem to have been disappointing. Would Gateway or perhaps a late September race on the IMS road course be a better fit? Ah, interesting. I think there might be a revolt among teams if it was on the IMS road course because, yeah, uh, there's just not a lot of passion for that. Granted, everyone would be home, and it'd probably be easy. In terms of final race, we'll chuck in the banquet as well. We're going to wrap it all up easily. Uh, we did go to Laguna last year. Uh, it's really the only one and only time we've been there for that in the last decade or however. I mean, in a really long time. Um, I think I might have gotten that totally wrong, too. Um, for some reason, I'm thinking of inserting American Le Mans Series season finales there. Uh, but I know definitely back in the day, um, it was a place where the season ended. <sighs> yeah. Uh, crowd numbers, it's going to be a great question. Knowing that we do not have IndyCar there this year, in theory, whatever momentum that was built uh, starting in 2019, we're going to have that break. I wonder, Daniel, if we're going to be starting over when we go back next year as the season finale. Uh minus covid do i think we would have had a pretty decent bump in crowd size i do uh i think it went over well was well received uh and had a pretty decent crowd um yeah i think we're gonna have to see what it looks like in whether there is any kind of improvement there in 2020 i do believe you mentioned in gateway I mean, that's just been mentioned many times as something that folks uh, really should consider, and I'd be all for it. You want to close the season with full, full grandstands and ending it on an oval where it does seem like the good old dice get rolled more and there's more drama and uh, a little bit of craziness that gets thrown in. I mean, that just seems like the perfect place for a season finale, if you ask me. Let's see, Andy Bauer. Marshall has always continued prayers for your wife uh, and you as she battles things. Says, with silly season heating up, what are the odds Ryan hunter loses his seat at Andretti? Uh, and if he did, does he have a shot at landing anywhere else? I uh, mentioned at the end of the part one episode that would I be totally shocked to see Ryan in something at Aaron McLaren SP? We know that at least immediately that... Felix has been slotted into their second car. There's still a third car that they're hoping to run part-time. Who knows if that could become full-time. And I do wonder if Ryan uh, would still be in the frame for something like that. Still need to try and get a, a updated feel for where things are going with Ryan and the Andretti team. It all comes down to money. It has nothing to do with Ryan's ability or, or anything like that. It's We've just heard for a while now that DHL is, is wrapping up a long and I would say very successful relationship uh, in sponsoring that car. We do know that it's one of many business-to-business type deals, B2B deals. So the Andretti team would argue is better than any other 
at finding sponsors and conducting B2B deals. So big question here, Andy, which I don't have the answer for right now is, will the team look to try and find enough sponsorship to satisfy that number 28 Honda's budget to then extend an offer for Ryan Hunter Ray to continue? I mean, this is not too dissimilar from the Felix and Ganassi situation. Got to get the car locked in first before we want to try and lock in paying a driver to drive it. I would say that they're identical situations here, but what I don't know is, is there an effort to say, all right, we want you to be the guy. We just want you to hold on, and it might be a little while till we can put that contract in front of you because we've got to get that car handled first financially. Or is it a case of, look, we don't know, so it would be better for you to just start looking elsewhere and the door isn't necessarily closed, but since we can't offer you anything right now, uh, go start hunting and we're prepared to lose you. I don't know where that timeline is at. We do know, as we've mentioned, there's been at least one offer to another driver, that being Santino Ferrucci. If you can pay for the seat, it's yours. That was something that went nowhere. Has that offer been made to others? Don't know. Might assume that would make sense, though, right? So it might appear uh, that the team is ready to move on. Um and just simply try and lock down a driver with funding to make sure that that car is good to go, period, instead of willfully walking into weeks and months of limbo, questions on funding, and having RHR sit out there in the breeze, hoping everything's going to come together, but maybe it doesn't. And by the time that determination is made, maybe all the other seats are gone. I would just say that it appears like we might be seeing him drive somewhere else, provided there's somewhere else for him to drive. Uh, we talk about the Ganassi situation. Who's the heir apparent to Dixon at some point in time? Who's that young driver or medium age driver to fill that spot? Is there one that's ready right now? Don't know. Would it be worth considering a Ryan Hunter Ray to be that guy for a year next to Dixon? Again, don't know. Just throwing stuff out. Uh, would that Aero McLaren SP third car be something that they benefited from having him there? We know that that would be something they paid for. <sighs> the Ryan Hunter Ray question, Andy, is one that pops up in my head somewhat frequently. Love the guy, think the world of him as a person, and just hope that he gets things sorted out because it sucks to be nearing 40 and still delivering but not knowing uh, exactly if and what your future would hold. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Rob Ball. MP, one complaint that drivers, fans, and yourself have had about the Delara DW12 chassis is that it's too heavy, especially with the addition of the aero screen. Mentions with the addition of a hybrid system on the way and its weight being added to the chassis. Where do you think it would be possible to take weight out of the car when they develop the new chassis to compensate for all the weight that has been added and still meet the higher performance numbers they're looking for. Yeah, this is a question, Rob, that I don't have an answer for because I can't figure out how they achieve this thing. 
Will Power, who was our guest last week, said he's been pushing for a carbon fiber gearbox. The expense of doing that would be insane, on the IndyCar level at least. It would save a nice chunk of weight, but knowing how many crashes take place each year and how many gearboxes get torn up, the budgets would see a pretty brutal spike in gearbox replacement uh, numbers. So where it's just i don't fully grasp how that happens rob we've had not only the aero screen 60 pounds bolted on on top but we've had layer after layer of cladding added to the sides of the cars to improve crash worthiness with the side impact so they have become tank like and that's a great thing we haven't had a cockpit intrusion from a uh, side impact in a super long time. Adding those Xylon panels has really helped. Adding the aero screen has also been a great thing. But unless you somehow make the aero screen lighter, which I don't know how you do that, uh, I mean, could they somehow save two or three pounds? Let's say five pounds. I don't know. Sure. But five out of something that weighs about 1,800 pounds, I believe, fully loaded with fuel and driver, maybe a little bit more if my brain's misfiring. I mean, five pounds is great, but yeah, uh, that's not a lot. We also have the Xylon paneling. Could you incorporate that into the car? And that's something that would happen with any brand new DW12 uh, that's built, but are there ways they could save some weight on the chassis? I'm sure. Uh, I'm just going to say, let's imagine that they take 30 or 40 pounds out of the chassis by building a brand new car with everything integrated and again, none of this kind of bolt-on stuff, but truly it's all designed to carry the side impact, the aero screen, the everything, and they've just knocked weight out of it. That'd be amazing. 30 pounds, 40 pounds. Again, it'd be phenomenal. Well, we then have the mechanical portion of the kinetic energy recovery system that's going to sit at the back of the car. That's going to be a big chunk of weight. We're also going to have a battery, right, that needs to receive and hold and then return the electricity that's being generated. I don't fully understand how we get down to a happy number also just throwing out basic stuff here noses of the cars are pretty darn stout because they hit things first more often than not a lot of energy absorption done there and so you need material to do that if the noses are just really thinned out hollowed out and whatnot for the sake of losing weight well that thing just folds like paper against the wall does really nothing or almost nothing to dissipate energy and uh, reduce the energy being fed into the driver's body. There's just a lot of these things we have to think about and say, huh, how do you take weight off of a car that's already been thought of, of how do we make it light ish uh, in numerous ways? So I know they're going to get weight off the car, whether it is suspension, whether it is brakes, whether it is, a lot of different things. They're going to try and take a lot of weight off the car, but with all the things that have been added in, and to your exact point, 
and the new things that are coming that are just heavy. It's just metal <laughs> and battery and it's just weight. <sighs> that's where I think the added horsepower that's coming from the engine plus the uh, electric horsepower that's coming, those things are going to be really cool. And once the cars get up and moving, we're going to have potentially really impressive top speeds. But that's weight that's going to absorb a lot of that power, at least under initial acceleration. We are not going to see the crazy rocket explosion that we want to unless they do get the overall weight down. Um, You know, it's why elephants aren't, particularly impressive uh when they stand up and start moving you get them rolling for a little bit and they can run at a pretty decent speed but that's just a lot of mass to get up and moving despite the immense power in those muscles and in that frame it just yeah that's my concern here uh casey coolidge marshall is there a bop for those without cameras for those with says, I would think this would make a significant difference, especially at Indy. Yes, indeed, Casey. So there is ballast that is carried by those who do not have cameras so that everybody is at uh, an equal number. And they also do that with driver weight, too. Uh, Within 15 minutes after the first practice session, all drivers have to run over and get weighed on the official scales. Their weight is not only documented by the series, but that also gives them the number they need to make sure that everyone meets the minimum weight uh, so that nobody is indeed running light. And cameras also factor into that as well. Uh, Kevin Kerner. Hey, MP, repost from last week. Can you explain how limited slip differential works? Oh, boy. Uh, Yes, it's just going to be a really simple and basic one. And do current IndyCars ever run solid axles on ovals, for example? Watching an old broadcast from 1994, I heard Uncle Bobby say they use solid axles. On the short ovals like Milwaukee. Caught my attention. Yes, those are referred to on the ovals as spools. And so they do indeed connect the inside rear and out, uh, outside rear uh, axles together. And yes, that's what you get. Um, limited slip differential. Basically, it feeds power to the most heavily loaded wheel. So that's why you have a pretty cool thing going on with limited slip differentials. And that is why it becomes a really important tuning tool for teams because based on, we'll just keep this simple-ish and suggest that you, if you want to see more, I know that there are some videos out there, I would suggest Googling Kevin's exact question. Uh, How does a limited slip differential work? There's some cool videos for you to watch there. This is an area of tuning, a definite area of tuning. Enjoyed the however many times I've been the one to rip the LSD, limited slip differential, out of the gearbox and make changes to it. Uh, Mechanical device, a bit of an obvious statement there, but there are ways that you can tune. There are changes you can make to the LSD that affect how it reacts on throttle and off throttle, how it settles the rear of the car, puts down power, reacts once you're off power, 
all these things that the driver feels. And when they talk about balance in the car being properly balanced or having a handling imbalance, there's a ton of stuff you can change already. We know about damper settings and springs and anti-roll bars and ride heights and suspension settings and toes and cambers and all kinds of stuff. The diff is one that is also, uh, that's a big one. That's a, that's a broad stroke change where, and you can get it wrong (laughs) for sure, but how you set up the differential to cause the rear of the car to react on or off throttle and to help the car turn based on what the, how the limited slip differential apportions power and reacts when you're off power and what it does to the behavior of the car. It's a pretty big thing. Like you can tune a lot of the other stuff that's kind of more refined changes, smaller changes to get it closer to what you like. Uh, going in and changing the, the setup on the diff itself, that's a really broad stroke. And if you get it right, boy, uh, everything else is really good. And if you get it wrong, car is almost impossible to drive. <clears throat> Jake Ziller, who last week, Sent in your first question, and I referred to as Zake. Sorry there. MP, apologies if you've already answered this in a previous episode. I can be a bit of a big dummy from time to time. Well, first of all, no. That's my responsibility, having grown up watching Sanford and Son and listening to Fred refer to his son as a big dummy for most of my life. That's my job here. I was wondering when a team runs two different liveries on a car at a double header, like Rossi did at the Harvest Grand Prix, is it two different cars team brings or do they rewrap it in between and how does that affect if the cars wrecked in race one or qualifying most of what i've heard involves crew coming in to wrap and change between events so really cars come off track and that's what they jump in to do uh the having a second car prepped backup chassis prepped and rolling that in I think I've heard of that. Uh, I can't, don't hold me to that, Jake. Um, But yeah, it's something that happens so frequently now. And this is back at the team's base, right? Not necessarily at the track, but it's such a familiar process since wrapping has become the thing that everybody does that it's not a, I would say a giant disruption. And it's also pretty common between, you know, in a double header Granted, you don't want to just wear out the teams and say, okay, it's just guaranteed after race one, you're going to strip the car down to its its last nut and bolt. It'd be a little bit strange, though, uh, if the majority of the teams did not indeed put their cars up in the air, take the the transaxle, take the whole back of the car off, the engine out, look, inspect, update, service, uh, there could be something that mileage is out. They need to install something new. Even though there's a ton of work that goes in and a race that gets held and a doubleheader the next day, you still have uh, teams, you know, they're not taking shortcuts when it comes to prep. So for a team that needs to do a wrap, I uh, would say while it adds time for sure, uh, I don't know if it'd really be a case of, oh my goodness, you know, uh, we weren't planning on touching the car, but now because of you, you got to take a lot of things off and make it available for you to do those things. So, um, that's pretty much what I know, Jake. I should also mention, uh, 
yet another thing I should have thrown in at the beginning of the episode, and I apologize. Um, would love to see final brain power come into play on my end where I get to an answer to a question that had been submitted twice, three times, and I'm forgetting all the... I know it's been submitted by more than one person regarding IndyCar fuel. How does it get paid for? Is it per gallon? If a team crashes out on the first lap, do they have to pay for all the unused fuel either in the car's tank or the big refueling tank on pit lane? Finally got an answer to that. And I am told that no, none of those things are a thing or an issue because the fuel, the paying for it, how much you use or don't use doesn't really matter because it's included in your leader circle contract. Of course, for those that don't earn a leader circle contract, you would in theory have to pay. I didn't get an answer on that angle, but we can say that 22 out of 23 cars next year will have their fuel included in their leader circle. So yeah, use it all. Don't use it all. doesn't matter. You're not going to get billed for it independently. If that's wrong, well, I apologize, but I went to the series to ask, and that's the question that I got, or that's the answer I got back. Uh, I'm going to wind, start winding down here a little bit uh, and do my best. Let's see how quickly I can rattle through these. Uh, Aaron Richmond, in your personal opinion, thank you, Aaron, compared to my impersonal opinion, given everything you know, do you believe there will be a third OEM in IndyCar for the 23 season when the new chassis and engine specs hit the track? I think this was asked in part one. Um, I'll just go and assume that it was. Uh, I would be surprised if there was a true full third OEM, Aaron, I think, and this feels like I've answered this already, so I apologize. Do I think Penske and company could help that manufacturer a little bit to get in and maybe offset some of the costs? Yes. And I am unaware of a new chassis coming in 2023. Uh, Kevin DeVries, let's see. Being immersed in the silliness that is the Prue Day, which I need to share with some of y'all, apparently a rather crazy bunch of listeners of the show have broken off informed uh, a replica of my favorite WWE wrestling tag team, which has just been broken up, the New Day. So they call themselves the Prue Day and communicate regularly. And I don't know the methods. I haven't asked. I'm not trying to get in the middle of it. It's not my place. But I love the fact that Kevin here, Kevin DeVries, and I don't know, maybe a dozen more of you kind of uh, get together and talk about the show, make fun of me, and do all the things that, uh, you know, hopefully enrich lives in some way compared to uh tear down lives um kevin says being immersed in the silliness that is the prude got me wondering about the imminent silly season last year was such a doozy are we likely to hear about plans for 2021 prior to saint pete or will teams and drivers sit on any decisions until the shorter than normal off season mentions if preseason tests start when they normally do fingers crossed figure that it's just three months until we are back on track with indycar I also feel like this might have been thrown into part one, but I don't know because my brain does not retain such things because there's a pretty crazy torrent of stuff going through it. I know that with the Felix leaving Ganassi going to Air McLaren SP thing, 
I know that I've heard suggestions that there was a desire to make that formal before St. Pete. Um, I don't expect that in particular to come until after, I think, as I mentioned. It's also normal if we're just talking conventions and how things normally work, Kev. It's not uncommon. If anything, it's almost standard, whether it's IndyCar, sports cars, whatever, where if there's a driver change from team to team taking place, more often than not, you get either the team with the person that's leaving. uh, It's usually the person with the team, uh, the team with the person that's leaving that says to wherever that driver is going, hey, you're still under contract with us. Got it. You're leaving. Um, We're going to get through the end of the year before we confirm this because we have sponsors that we need to reflect in a positive light. We don't want our sponsors to be dragged into this. Hey, what's going on? What do they do? Is this negative effect on the company sponsoring the driver? What's the deal? We just need to keep things clean from our end. If some people want to write about it, if this gets out, what I mean, we can't control everything. But at least from our end, we're going to be clean. We're not going to touch this. You're not going to talk about it. Um, had a driver among those who've been lumped in with the silly season stuff over the last week uh, reach out wanting to do an article and saying, can we do it tomorrow? Yes, can do it tomorrow. Reach out and say, hey, what time do you want to do it today? And then get an answer back saying, I've been told that I can't say a word about anything. Sorry, going to have to wait till the end of the year or once I'm free from my contract. So that's often how these things work, Kev, on the driver's side. Uh, if we're talking about teams and expanding, it wouldn't be uncommon to have a team say, hey, we're going to go to a new car next year, add something might not necessarily name who's going to be driving it, but it's not totally strange to see that. So I would mention that there could be some news next week about team developments. Could there be a driver announcement or two? Very possible. The other thing, and I know this comes back to Ryan Hunter Ray as one of the first thoughts, but there are some others possibly. Would it be uncommon for a team wanting to make sure that uh, the world is alerted that a driver they like and respect won't be back, but they love them and want folks to know that they wish them the best and hope that they land somewhere else to formally uh, alert those who might not have been paying attention within the paddock that, oh, you might reach out to driver X. Could that happen? A a pre-final race farewell type? Press release might not be totally surprised to see that happen. Would also throw in, again, just all the variations. Teams that are with a driver that's maybe a rookie or just in their first year or two, but up for a contract, don't totally sure if they're going to get back, come back, get something worked out. Would it be strange to have one of those teams say, hey, uh, we're going to continue next year? provided they can obviously get that deal done before the final race. I think that could be something as well that we see. So I would be lying, Kev, if I said, oh, I know that there's six press releases coming next week and one's announcing this person staying, one's this leaving, and we're going to grow, we're going to shrink. 
I don't want to pretend like I know about a bunch of stuff like that coming. I have heard that we could have one or two, but hell, <laughs> the things that were a, a locked in guarantee watch for this on date X type thing that I've heard about in the last month or two. Uh, this is definitely going to be announced. This is going to happen, whatever, whatever. I've had a lot of those things just absolutely not come to fruition. So that's why I'm hesitant to say, watch for St. Pete next week, man. Boy, your mind's going to be blown. Since I'm not the one making those decisions, uh, all I can do is observe externally and take some of what I hear and say, all right, well, you said you're going to do it. Be interesting to see if you did. Uh, but I'm not exactly going to stay up late at night refreshing my phone every two seconds to see if your press release lands uh, as you said it would. I mentioned just one other thing parallel, and it's not IndyCar, it's IMSA. Uh, know that a driver is meant to be confirmed in a significant seat. Is that going to be today? Is that going to be tomorrow, the day after? I don't know, but I know that it's coming, and based on confirmations that I've gotten behind the scenes I know this one is real and it will happen so while it hasn't come out I when we're done here with the podcast sometime soon I'm going to write that story have it sitting ready and waiting alert racer that hey this piece of driver news is coming can't tell you exactly when because the team isn't exactly sure when based on a couple things that need to happen but if you could get a photo ready and have a uh, post set up in the CMS that is more or less just waiting for the quotes to come, here's the story. Here's where to drop in the quotes. If you could have the headline done, have the photo in place. In theory, when the press release lands, it's truly just a cutting and pasting of the driver quote, the team quote, and then boom, provided that press release comes out, it will just say noon. In theory, our story could be ready and live by 1202. Uh, so that's not an uncommon thing, Kev, but that's also a scenario where I know that's going to happen and there's no question about it. We'll see what happens next week in terms of things and happening. Okay, uh, Ian Keyworth, fifth time. Holy crow, crow, cow. If, oh, brother, if you've sent this five times, that's a new record. I'm so sorry. Uh, fifth time lucky for the unpolished start of a show. Any news on an official IndyCar iRacing Winter Series to keep the momentum going through the off season? Giving, given the relative success of the COVID off season, uh, back in April and May, surely this would be worth looking at uh, and include some guest tracks and drivers. <sighs> so, Mr. Keyworth, just to further reinforce the fact that I'm garbage, not only have you apparently sent this in five times, I failed to look at this in advance and see that and then send that question uh, to get you all set with an answer. Um, so what I just did was take your question and I'm going to send it to someone that can hopefully get an answer. So the real question 
is whether you're going to have to send it this in a sixth time saying, Hey dummy, by the way, you finally read my question, but you didn't have an answer. Could you please provide me with the answer? So if you were to do that, brother, just like me forgetting to place the question ongoing question about fuel towards the front of the show, uh, maybe for us and you knowing this is a polished turd, unpolished turd in that I have many, many limitations in my mental faculties, Please be kind enough to send in the, hey, dummy, give us the answer thing next week. Uh, let's see. Jim Kaiser, our pal who brings haiku, says, keeping it simple this week, all eyes on St. Pete for the season finale. Who you got, Marshall? Based on the points lead, my dear friend, hope your uh, family is well, by the way. Hopefully the, uh, the Kaisers are doing muy excellente. Uh, based on the point scenario my man i would have to go with scott dixon and not because we have seen him just in a place of unquestioned strength over the last month ish uh this this thing's been bleeding pretty heavily uh since mid ohio uh well heck i mean even before mid ohio leaving gateway uh, from 96-point lead, leaving Gateway over Joseph Newgarden down to 32, genuinely cut two-thirds off of that lead, there would just have to be fairly catastrophic things, uncharacteristic things happening for Scott and that team at St. Pete to surrender 32 points um, to Joseph. So, or I guess end up with Joseph taking 33-point weekend and beating Dixon, or at least 33 points. It just seems like, yeah, while things have not been pretty for Scott lately, I struggle to see how he qualifies very poorly, and Joseph is way up front and Dixon's way in the back, and he has another, let's see if we can charge from 15th or 18th or whatever, and try and get some meaningful points. That's been his story for the past little while, whether it's poor qualifying or a spin in a race or whatever else. Uh, It'd just be really strange, Jim, to see this ongoing struggle, which is just not part of Dixon's narrative. It really isn't like, wow, race after race after race, getting it wrong. I'm not saying it's all been his fault by any means, but... It would just surprise me to see this continue yet again and for him to have a very poor final race and Joseph to do so much better that he's able to overcome this 32-point gap and take the championship. So here's, let me see, let me just do the count because, again, my brain, not smart. One, two, three, four. It's taken four races to cut two-thirds of Dixon's lead away. So if you just go by the numbers, it's taken two races to take away the first 32 points. It took another two races to take away the other 32 points. We have one race for Joseph to erase the final 32 points. Considering how poorly Scott's finishes have been at uh, many of these recent races, and it's a relative poorly, right? 
tenth and a tenth and a ninth and an eighth. I mean, those are not normal for Dixie unless things are going vastly wrong, which they have. It's taken two races, two times, to take 32 points apiece away from him. And I'm, again, just kind of averaging here. If we're looking at what he's done on a single race basis, we would say he's been taking away 16 points from Dixie of late in each round. And he's got a 32-point lead. This would require Dixie to be way the heck towards the bottom of the running order and Joseph to be all the way at the front. Am I saying that won't happen, couldn't happen? Absolutely not. But the numbers just tell us Scott's going to have to have essentially the, yeah, he's going to have to have his worst weekend of the year. And Joseph's going to have to continue being his strong and streaking self for this to have Dixon losing the championship. The worst Scott has finished all year is back at the second Road America race where he finished 12th. That's his worst. Uh, yeah. So be a big surprise, Jim. Dixon isn't the champion, just looking at the numbers and how they work out. Uh, Bob Gravel, and the final question Tim has uh, set up for us here. Which driver is most likely to wake up the day after St. Pete in a strange place other than Connor Daly? And how will it, in- it inevitably be Colton Herta's fault? Um, huh. I <coughs> I love the love the question here. It implies shenanigans. Who do I think is going to end up in the strangest place and we're, other than the ones you mentioned here? I think Jack Harvey. I think Jack is going to have an... I shouldn't say think. I have no idea. I have no control over these things. But they have certainly been streaking lately with the Marshank Racing team. His relationship with the good folks at Auto Nation, who are based, I believe, in St. Petersburg or Tampa or in that general area... This is their uh, homecoming race almost, knowing the relationship that Jack has with the company and how that has been developed on their end. <clears throat> knowing that Jack, over the last, what, four races since mid-Ohio, 7th, 12th, 8th, and 6th, uh, I think he has an amazing race. Hope he has an amazing race. Everyone at AutoNation is just so happy. And Jack, um, knowing, I guess, that he's a vegan, assuming he finds alcohol that has nothing uh uh meat or dairy or whatever based in it i think jack wakes up uh naked somewhere handcuffed to something and all because he was out partying like a fool and celebrating that they had a great close maybe a podium to uh finish the year that's my guess uh we just kind of naturally assume that connor wakes up uh you know naked and handcuffed to stuff on most days uh for no super particular reason uh, let's see, where do we go? Are there any others we're going to get to in overtime here? Where are we at time-wise? Yeah, okay, we're going to need to wrap this up in just a sec. I'm going to scroll through, see if I can find uh, any quick ones I can rattle off, and then we're going to say farewell. Uh, Michael Steen, Blick, your question about less ovals in 2021. Fire that one back in. It's a good one. Uh, just going to take a little bit to cover, so don't have time for that now. Matt Hawkins, will we ever see an IndyCar round in Europe? I know IndyCar is a good viewing here in the UK. Hashtag me personally be good if they could find the correct circuit to host it. Not in the near future, my friend. 
uh, just referring back to the financial challenges and stuff in the wake of COVID, uh, IndyCar is not looking for anything that's going to cost them a dime. And I don't know of any sponsors, tracks, whatever, trying to fly uh, an entire series over to play right now. Uh, let's see. Da, da, da. Chris Hoffman, MP, in a recent episode of the Hinch and Rossi podcast, they described the Indy Road Course as a European track, and it got me wondering, what's the difference between a European track and a non-European track? Uh, smoothness, my friend. So things that are super smooth, well-paved, largely unaffected by winters and cracks and unevenness and all manner of different pavement uh, types of stuff being put down to fill it in over the years and so on. That's generally where that comes from. Many American tracks are known for being beaten up, worn out, not exactly the, the phrase is smooth as a billiard table. Um, we don't have a lot of those. Even Coda, which is what, seven, eight years old? Even that thing is now just a crazy bumpy mess in a lot of places because of some really harsh weather affecting the track in general and realizing that certainly European tracks have the same weather. Uh, but there's just a bit of a most European tracks, professional racing tracks are known for being extremely smooth and better or gooder maintained. So that's where that comes from in uh, the Indy road course for sure is not a uh, not a place that is all pockmarked and torn up and uh, just a mess to drive over. Uh, let's see. Okay. Da, da, da. Uh, Matthew Loazzo, really kind question here. Looking back at the many years, been associated with IndyCar and its forebears. What has been your favorite racetrack from a professional's perspective? Huh. Professional, you're funny. Um, uh, and also says, uh, may you and your wife, wonderful wife, keep looking up. Thank you. Really, thank you, Matthew. Um, I could probably answer that with a lot of things, a lot of tracks. The one that just jumped out was Vancouver. I really loved that one. Uh, it was such an awesome, uh, event and loved the energy there. Uh, certainly Vancouver in terms of downtown nightlife and fun. There's lots, not as much as Toronto. It's another one that I love. Uh, going to Canada was always a big blast. I mean, it was truly a save up money, ask for extra per diem, uh, this is going to be fun. So, plus the racing was great. Uh, anyway, so I'll just say Vancouver for right now, but you could send in this question every week and I'd probably be able to answer it with a different track because with the exception of few in the, some of the years that I worked in the Indy Racing League where it was kind of hard to tell where you're at because the tracks were so damn similar and the same lack of crowds were there, um, I have pretty fond memories of almost everywhere that I went. Uh, ta -ta, ta -ta. Uh, Raymond Wong, uh, you've been to the land down under uh, a few times in your life. What is one of the crazy culture shock moments you experienced, whether it's racing or leisure? Hmm. Didn't have a lot of time for leisure, unfortunately. I uh, won't mention some of the normal things like, you know, different foods and whatnot. I mean, that's just part of traveling abroad. Culture shock. I would say the thing that I really enjoyed and I didn't know what to expect was the, hey, you're an American, right? Yeah, come on, you know, come in, take a look inside, or hey, good to have you here, or whatever. 
the the general warmth, and I don't want to call it a culture shock. I mean, I've worked with many Aussies and Kiwis over the years on racing teams. Uh, just love the good folks from down under. And But that's all been from an American perspective here in my country, not knowing what to expect on my first time down, second, third. Um, just in a very general sense, the warmth and the welcoming nature that I thought was really cool. And this is also in the first three, four, five years of my career in you know, as a reporter. So, I mean, you know, the, absolutely nobody had any clue who I was, what I did, or anything. Um, probably not like they would now either, but at least back then, like, I was just nothing but a question mark. And in those situations, Raymond, you can often get folks that either don't care, distance themselves, whatever. And it was really the opposite in almost every capacity. That's different, for example, say covering the 24 hours of Le Mans for 10 years straight. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Now, granted, there were some beautiful friendships established with folks that I would see there every year. But uh, I would say culturally, uh, I don't know if I ever felt the least bit welcome uh, because I was an American. So, yeah, just the people. Uh, let's see. Otto Kinzel, you ask a uh, question here about extreme and mediocre stuff. Team mediocre. Send that in again, brother, if you want, and I'll try and get to that. Um, Jeremiah Morell, if IndyCar were to go back to Kentucky, how many fans would need to show up for the event to be considered a success? Do they need 20,000 fans and a title sponsor? 50,000 fans? What is a magic number for an oval event to be considered a success? Well, this is another how long is a piece of string question, unfortunately, Jeremiah. I can't give you a number because whether it's Kentucky or any other new venue or even existing venue, it's all based on grandstand size and how full it looks. So whatever the place is, and however many grandstands are open, knowing that some are often roped off uh, or covered off and not made available on ovals these days, whatever the wherever the bulk of the fans sit, I'd say you need 50% to 75% full for it to look like it is positive, to give the visual impression to teams, sponsors, and just the viewing public that this is being well-received and not indeed a failure and a rejection of IndyCar by the lack of people coming out to want to see it in person. So can't give you a number. Title sponsor would be awesome, but the ability to look out from pit lane, the ability for sponsors post-COVID in hospitality suites to look down and see, aha, this thing we're spending money on with whatever team, whatever driver, it is popular and it has numbers and folks are reacting to it seriously. Therefore our money is well spent and we should keep spending it. That's the thing. That's the visual that has to be achieved uh, for that feeling to be generated to therefore warrant going back again and again. So wish I could give you a hard number, but it ain't quite there. Uh, where else? We got a couple more here. Uh, Tommy Placo, you mentioned you're writing in for the first time, uh, mentioned, discussed recently about Oliver Askew had angered McLaren during an interview. You asked, what is it that he had said would hope 
by now, Tommy, you found that, uh, me regurgitating stuff that's readily available, uh, by searching on the internet, try not to use this show to do things that, um, one can read and answer readily on their own. So hopefully you can find that Tommy. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm going to take one more here from Nick Fletcher via Reddit says, I'm sure my peanut brain doesn't understand the engineering side behind it. Hopefully you can help me understand. There's a continual talk about how the struggling oval package, uh, about the struggling oval package in IndyCar. Is there a mechanical engineering piece as to why they haven't implemented the alternate versus primary tires into ovals? Seems to me it could really add strategic variables to a track like Iowa. Uh, it says poorly timed reference or gateway where mechanical grip is so important. Maybe table IMS because of the budgets for the month and taking that race to a 12 plus stopper with uh, Firestone's alternate tires seems like a bit much. It's a, uh, it's a great question, Nick. It, it truly, it is. Why don't they use the alternate tires on the ovals? I can give you my answer to that. And I'm not saying that our friends at Firestone or IndyCar would give you the same one, but there might be some commonalities in the thought process here. And it does go along the lines of what you mentioned of the higher consumption rates, the reds being faster, the reds tending to wear faster, but also offering a higher performance for whatever period of time. I think you'd be facing two issues here that lead to your kind of comical, but, uh, tack sharp note of 12 plus stops. Uh, if you have to include reds into them, if you look at lap times on road and street courses, when drivers go to reds, of course it changes because they're not the same tires at every one of those events, but you'll hear from the drivers that they will get peak performance for a couple of laps, one, two, three, who knows, but then there's an appreciable drop off. So higher peak performance than the Firestone primary tires, but a limited window where you get that true impressive, holy cow, look at the speed or lap time type peak. Then it levels off uh, and then it drops off. When it levels off, you still get faster speeds than you do with the primary tires. When it drops off, oh boy, that's when things tend to really start to get not too happy and you get shorter stints if you don't absolutely nail the setup or preserve your tires. Where the concern here would be is you'd be going really darn fast with tires that are going to wear faster, give up faster, and all of a sudden not only do you have a 12-plus or 20-plus stop race, um, the peak potential is going to be something where I would think in most instances drivers would not get to half a tank of fuel before they would be stopping to put primaries on the car. And that's because when you're flying into, and I know you mentioned Iowa, but whether it's Iowa Gateway, Indianapolis, Texas, turn ones and turn threes, boy, you are carrying a ton of speed, putting a ton of load on that right front tire and that right rear tire, and then driving it hard into the circuit throughout the corner and firing back out and rocketing down the back straight and loading a ton of energy back into it, wearing uh, the right sides out in particular pretty darn quickly. So I think just simply the wear rate and the time of value that those reds would provide 
is the the limited time I should say is the reason why they don't bother. Uh, other quick angle to this to mention, and then we're going to say farewell. We've seen situations where even the primaries at some events over the years, oval events have not had a lot of longevity to them have been whatever issues that have caused drivers and teams to really safeguard them during the stints. That's with the ones that are meant to last a long time where there is no option to go to. And these are the one and only you got, um, throwing another variable in with tires that are known to offer a higher peak, but wear super fast. That's just not something I think most teams would want to venture into. Um, having a single tire and no alternate on the ovals, knowing the speeds and the dangers that can often come with it, sticking with a single compound, a single tire to use that is known to have pretty much everywhere we go, the durability to last a full stint without drama and, oh, my godness, hit the panic button. Uh, since we're talking these ovals where we know how badly things can go when they go bad, I think that's probably the overarching reason, Nick, why we just stick with the primaries and will likely always stick with them. So speaking of sticking, thanks for sticking with me this week. I apologize for taking longer than I wanted to to get this done. Did try and do it Wednesday night, but that was an epic fail, like many things in my life. Uh, hopefully the opening bit on the latest driver changes and stuff coming was vaguely interesting. Hope to be able to tell you more a little bit farther down the road when this is not something that does have a number of folks in a super not extremely happy place. Uh, but yeah, silly season, y'all. It's not slowing down. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. We'll look forward to speaking to you next week. <laughs>